You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Every book, every play, every movie is broken down into three basic acts, three major sections. In the beginning of the book or movie or play, there's the introduction of the character, the introduction of the main protagonist, the person that you're going to be kind of following along with. You get to know them. And in the second act, there's kind of their first conflict, this first challenge that they have, and that is important. But the third act, the final act, is the one where they finally achieve the, the big victory. And if you watch any movie or you read a book, if there is a big, powerful moment in the second act, they're going to really have to follow it strong with a third act. Because nobody wants to read a book where the, the, the main character defeats the foe halfway through and then spends the rest of the story buying groceries and going to the store and going to work on Monday, right? It needs to build, And what we've been reading in the Gospel of John has been an introduction to Jesus, and there's been this this main conflict that he's been in, but we're about to enter into the third act. And it's not that the other things that have come before this moment are unimportant, they're very important, and John has included them for a very specific reason. But he's coming to the climax, the ending here of this story, and you notice that we are in chapters 10 and 11, and there are 21 chapters in the book of John. So the last half of this book is dedicated to this final act, which is the last week of Jesus' life. Can you imagine if the half of the story of your life is contained in one week? And the one week that is going to contain the majority of Jesus' story is his final week. It's the final week of life that he has here among us before his execution. And John 10 and 11 help us make this swing from the second act into the third act, this transition from this early conflict that Jesus is having into the final act of the story. And there are two major moments that we can see this happening. And the first is at the end of chapter 10. And so look at verses 26 to 31 with me. Jesus has just finished his message about how he's the good shepherd that we looked at last week. And by the way, if you missed that, you can go back and you can watch that on our website. Catch up with all the messages that you missed. Jesus says, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26, but you believe not because you are not my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And so he's making some really powerful statements about God the Father and His powerful. He's more powerful than any other. And then verse 30, he says, And I and my Father are one. And so Jesus is not only talking about how powerful God is, but He's stating that He is God. And so there's this transition from God is powerful, I am God. Verse 31, and the Jews took up stones again to stone him. 
And John says again, because this has been happening again and again and again, there have been these moments that Jesus makes these big, bold statements and the people want to take his life because he is doing what they would refer to as blasphemy. He's putting himself on the level of God. And so they think in their minds that he's taking the level of God down a peg or down a notch and they can't stand for that. Now, this has happened multiple times. And once again, as has happened previously, Jesus slips away. And they're not able to take him. They're not able to kill him. They're not able to arrest him. But as this happens again and again, there's this building tension. And it's leading to a boiling point. You've probably had that person in your life where there's been one thing after another, after another, after another. And finally, you get to the point where it's just boiling over. And this tension that Jesus has with the crowd, it is boiling over. But they're not able to take Jesus because Jesus is not going to have his life taken from him. He's going to lay it down. And he says that explicitly in verses 17 and 18. So look back at chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my father. And so Jesus is able to slip away because there's not going to be any point where the people take Jesus' life that doesn't work in the grand plan of what God is up to and what he is doing. And and hear this, okay? Tune in to what what John is telling us here. Jesus' life is not taken from him. He is not killed. He is not executed. Jesus lays down his life for his And that moment is coming. And the details of how it will come together is shown to us at the end of chapter 11. So now look over at chapter 11 towards the end. We're going to start reading in verse 48. The Pharisees have gathered. They've heard what Jesus has just done, which we're going to focus on in a moment. And it it is prompted and they've got to have this meeting. They've got to get together. They're going to figure out what they're going to do. And the The chief priests and the Pharisees are gathering and they say, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. So the Pharisees who are these these leaders that are under the occupying force of the Romans, they're afraid that if Jesus continues to attract all of these followers and all of these believers with the things that he's doing, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take their place. They're going to remove them from power, and they're going to crush their nation. And so they're afraid. Verse 49, And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient. And I want you to make note of that word expedient. That it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And so the priest says, listen, it would be better off, it would be more expedient, it'd be more practical if this one man dies, then the Romans come and kill us all. And so he's thinking from a pragmatic standpoint, but he doesn't realize what he said. He said that it would be good for Jesus to die for all the people. And John points out this irony that this man has said exactly what Jesus is going to do, not even knowing what he said. So verse 51, And this he spake not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. 
And not for that nation only, but that he should all gather all the people into one children of God that were scattered abroad. Verse 53, and then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. The Pharisees get together and they decide that what is most expedient, what's most expedient is that Jesus dies so that they hold on to their place of power. And listen, when, when we feel like our place, our position, our, our authority is challenged, we will do anything that we can to hold on to it, to grasp onto it. And so the Pharisees, feeling like Jesus is challenging their place of authority, their place of power, they're doing everything they can to hold on to it, and they're driven even to murder so that they can hold on to this. And, and before I get into this, can I just say, because it's, it's still 2019, it's not 2020 yet, and so we're not yet quite into the heat of the next presidential election, can we just like make a commitment to one another right now that as it gets crazy in our culture next year, that we're not going to buy into all that craziness? Because what happens in 2020, I believe, is important, but it's not the most important thing. I believe that it's really important who gets elected into office next year, but I think the most important thing is what we're doing right here. And so this is not a political action group. This is a kingdom army of God's people. The thing that we are most concerned about is with Jesus. And I never have to vote for Jesus because one day he's going to ascend on the throne and it's going to be taken care of and it won't matter who votes for or against it. It's just going to happen. And so the work of the Lord moves forward in spite of whatever happens in Washington, D.C. But I'm afraid that we don't believe that because as the political process ramps up, we get so agitated because we think that our position in the world and our place of authority rests upon which party is in office, and it doesn't rest on that at all. There are some things that would be more expedient for us, that would be more practical for us. I think if we followed godly wisdom and biblical instruction, that our nation would be much better off. But my life and my calling does not depend on any politician. It depends upon Jesus. Amen? Amen. We agree on that. And so that's what binds us together. That's what brings us together. But if we are so desperate for our people to be in office, for our people to be in authority, for our group to be at the head of the culture, for our group to be the accepted, we'll, we'll, we'll claw at it. And we'll say things that make no sense. And we'll do things that are against our ethics because we're desperately clawing after that position of power and authority and we want it. And we've gotten to a place in our country right now where the end just justifies the means and whatever we have to do to be in power is what we have to do. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're doing whatever it takes to stay in power and it leads to the murder of Jesus. And so if you find yourself blurring the lines of your ethics and your integrity and your legacy because you want to convince other people to join your cause or to join your side, you want it to be more expedient or more practical for your side to win, know that you're in company with the Pharisees because that's what they did. And the kingdom of God is not expedient, it's not practical, but it's right, it's true. 
And so the reason that they're moved to, to, to take counsel together of how they're going to kill Jesus is because they feel like their place is threatened. And we like our reality or the picture of reality that we have set so much that we will do everything that we possibly can to grasp a hold of it, to hold on tightly to it. Mark Clark, who wrote The, the Problem of God, that's the the book that we used last Easter when we went through all of the different reasons that we can have faith in Christ. He talks about in the end of the book that when his grandfather was near the end of his life, the thing happened, a thing happened to him that happens to many people who are older and they're in the kind of the final chapter of their life. Some people came and took advantage of him by pretending that they cared for him. And they convinced him to sell his home and buy a new house that they could all live in together so that they could take care of him. And what they were doing is they were getting his money from him to get their own things, to get their own house. And Mark Clark went and he talked to his grandfather and he showed him evidence that this is what they're doing. They're taking advantage of you to get your stuff, to get your money. And he said, it didn't matter how I laid it out for my grandfather, he didn't want to believe it. Because he he liked these people being around and pretending to care for him, even if it did cost him all of his money. And sometimes we will hold on to a reality that isn't true just because it's comfortable or nice. Because it's enjoyable. And we'll reject the truth, not because we don't believe it, but because we'd rather hold on to the comfortable, convenient reality we've painted for ourselves. And some of you have been living your life and you've been pretending that God isn't real. Not because you really think that or believe that, but because it's just more comfortable for you to not think about a God who can require of you a judgment one day. When I read that story in that book last year, it reminded me of a situation that I knew about. There was a, there was a man who, who lived close to where we lived in Virginia. His, his name was Mr. Brooks, and Mr. Brooks was the stern man. I mean, you did not speed past Mr. Brooks' house. You know, It's one of those type of people. He'd come out and yell at you. But that same thing happened to him where some people came and convinced him that they cared for him and they wanted what's best for him and he turned over lots of his money to them and they went and lived with them. And, and he finally realized what was happening and it just always struck me as funny as the thing that finally got him to see that they didn't really care for him. He got mad because they kept feeding him bologna sandwiches. Like he didn't want to eat another bologna sandwich. He's like, I don't want to live here anymore. All these people feed me is bologna sandwiches. I mean, they could have kept taking his money if they just maybe like worked in some ham or something like that, you know? But the bologna is what like, that's it, I'm done. And there are times that I'm, I'm amazed at the thing that finally gets our attention and helps us realize that the reality that we have made for ourselves or we've tricked ourselves into believing that feels comfortable, that we finally get out of it, is it might be over something really silly. And it might be that you're here today, not because you finally came to realize that there is a God of the universe who's going to require you to stand before Him one day. It may be that you just got sick of the world's bologna sandwiches. And whatever reason you're here today, though, bologna sandwiches or existential crisis, what I hope that you'll see in this chapter is that Jesus is the Son of God because that's what it all comes down to. That's what really matters. What's the truth? 
The truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. And we spend most of our time looking for a way to be all right, looking for a way to be comfortable. And I want to encourage you, don't look for a way to be all right. Look for what's right. Look for what's true. Look for what's real. And in this chapter, I think you'll see it. So so what happens in chapter 11 that brings the Pharisees to to, to come to this place where they're going to kill Jesus? Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, and he's done this miracle that makes it obvious that he's the Son of God, and so they've got to do something. And when they meet, they never ask, is is what he's saying true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? They never ask that. They just decide, well, this is what we got to do. That's the reality that they're grasping onto. Now today, you're, you're probably not in that same boat, but here's, what you, here's where you might be. You might be saying, I, I need a little bit more religion in my life. I need a little bit of church in my life. And whether it's here at Faith Church or a church down the street or a church in Newburgh or a church in Evansville, as long as you're going to church, right? No. Because there are places that you can go and you can feel religious and you can be like, hey, we're, we're all on the same team, right? I mean, we're all going to church. I'm a Christian like you're a Christian. I voted like you did or I did those things that you did or I, I kind of patterned my life after these holidays like you do. We're in, the same, we're in the same ballpark. And the truth is that we might think that we're in the same ballpark when we're not even on the same planet. Because what it all comes down to is how do we answer the question, is Jesus the Son of God? How do you answer that question? Because there are people that they're having church this morning and they don't believe that. Now, any church that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and presents that truth as the gospel, as the gospel truth of what transforms and changes our lives, man, that is great. I'm thankful for them. I hope that they are full this morning. I hope that they reach more and more people. But if we're not all on the same page about Jesus is the Son of God, we're not in the same ballpark. We're not even in the same universe. Because that changes everything. What we believe about Jesus changes everything. It all hinges on that question. Because if it's true, it changes everything. If it's not, you shouldn't be here today. So I hope that you'll look at what happens in chapter 11 and you'll be moved to see that it's clear that Jesus is the Son of God. Now I wish that I could go through all of the first 15 verses, but I can't. So let me just kind of give you the the background on what's happened. Jesus has a group of friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their siblings. And Lazarus gets sick. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live in the greater Jerusalem area. They live outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, which is about two miles away. So closer than Chandler is to Evansville, they live to Jerusalem. Their brother becomes violently sick, unexpectedly sick. And they're worried, but they know Jesus. They're friends with him. And what would you do in that situation? You know Jesus, you're friends with him. Jesus has healed people. He healed a man who was blind from birth. So they send a messenger to find Jesus and say, Lazarus is sick, come and see him. And Jesus gets the message and and he sends the messenger back and he waits. He just waits. And Jesus doesn't start making his way from the countryside where he's been hiding out to Bethany where Lazarus is until Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead. And then he heads to Bethany. And Lazarus has died. He's been dead for four days. The sisters are grieving. They're mourning. And then Jesus comes into town. And that's where we're going to pick up reading in verse 20. Then Martha, 
as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Jesus, where have you been? You could have saved Lazarus. Where have you been? But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then Jesus looks at her and he asks a question. Believest thou this? Do you believe this? She says, well, sure, I believe. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, we've talked about what John constantly refers to as the life. And we've talked about the fact that Jesus came so that we might have the life. But here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus says, I am the life. But when we refer to that, we're not referring to the length of days that we have, but rather this meaning and significance that we experience in life. This hope that is given to us in life. This past summer, I, uh, I got to preach at our national convention. It was just it was an incredible experience. It was an honor to be asked and and I just poured myself into that message and that, that sermon, and I felt like it went well. I felt like I, I communicated exactly what I needed to in that moment, and I was faithful to the text. And I walked away from that experience extremely satisfied. And then my parents, who don't normally come to the National Convention, they came because you know they wanted to hear me speak. They wanted to be there for that moment. And so after that, that service, I had, I had spoke, and I felt like I'd done what God called me to do. My parents were there, and we went out to dinner, and it was me, Nicole, Haven, Lincoln, some my family, my parents, some friends, my sister and her husband, and, and their children, my cousin Mark, who's planning a church in Virginia, and... We, we sat down at this restaurant, ordered a steak, and I don't know if it was because of what I just experienced and like the, 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 the wonderfulness of that moment, but it was the best steak I've ever had in my life. And, and maybe the steak was just hamburger meat, I don't know, but it just tasted so good. And in that moment, eating what I was like, this is one of the best steaks I've ever had, and sitting with people that I love after doing something I felt like God had called me to do, and hearing my children laugh with their cousins. I thought, man, this is probably one of the highlights of my life. This this moment right here. And in that moment, I just had this great sense of gratitude. Like, thank you, God, that I get to experience this. Thank you, God. Now, you don't have to be a believer to enjoy hanging out with your friends. And you don't have to believe in Jesus to enjoy a good steak. You don't have to believe in Jesus to do a job that you feel like you've done well and be satisfied in a good day's work. You don't have to be a believer to do any of that. But I think that believing in Jesus gives you a sense of where all of that comes from and why all of that matters. And in that moment... 
what I felt connected to was extremely similar to an experience that I've had in a hospital waiting room praying with grandparents who know that their granddaughter is dying down the hall. Now, the emotions were completely different. I wasn't happy in that moment. I wasn't proud in that moment. I didn't feel especially connected to community in that moment. I didn't feel surrounded by friends. I was emotionally a wreck. I was a mess. I was bawling. I was crying. I was very little help to anybody that was there. But even in the midst of that heartbreak, there was a hope that was resilient. That gave me an understanding that there is something more than this. More than this moment. And though the experiences were on opposite ends of the spectrum, that connection to Jesus was, was tangible and real in both of them. And what Jesus says here is He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life do you believe this? And when the Gospels talk to us about truly experiencing the life that God has, it's not saying that every moment's going to be like this good moment where everything is going right. There are going to be a lot of moments where there is brokenness and there's heartache and there's grief and there's going to be every moment in between. And you might be anywhere on that spectrum today. You're not extremely excited and you're not extremely sad. It's just another week of you going through your life and trying to make it and trying to get through this week. But in the midst of all of that, you can be connected to something that is greater, that is better, that is true. And Jesus shows us this in this passage of Scripture because in these moments, He shows us very real His emotions that He is experiencing. Look at verse 32. So Jesus has this conversation with Mary, Martha, then He heads to the grave and Mary meets them there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, What? Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews, the other people that were weeping with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see And they show him the grave. And then we have the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And so we see Jesus weeping and crying. But what's happening just a couple of verses before that is that Jesus is groaning. He's troubled. A couple of verses later, Jesus groans again. And this word here for for groaning, it means to be bothered. Have you ever been bothered? You ever been in an experience that just makes you go, oh, that's that groaning that Jesus is experiencing. And Jesus is standing there before the tomb of his friend, his friend that has died, and he is groaning. And he sees all the people who are, are crying, and he's groaning. A little bit later, Jesus is weeping, and the people say, oh, how he loved him. But then they say, but you know, if he had been here, he probably could have helped him. And it's that moment like at a funeral where people are, oh, I feel so bad for her, but man, can you believe that she wore that? I feel so bad for them, but I heard they are already fighting over the money. 
It's that, it's that moment where people are there because they're, they're there to help you, but they're also talking about you behind your back. And that's what they're doing to Jesus in the moment. Hey, look, man, he really loved him, but why didn't he come help him? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he groans again, and he's troubled, and he's upset, and he's crying. And what I want you to see here is that nobody in this moment, more than Jesus knew, that Lazarus could be raised from the dead. And everyone who's questioned where he's at, he said, listen, I'm going to bring him back to life. He will come back to life. And so Jesus knows this, but he's still emotional. And, And you could be here today, and you can know the truth of the gospel, and know the truth of Jesus, and still be incredibly emotional at the brokenness of this world. And that's okay. Because even Jesus did that. It's a moment where, where grief and anger are mixed together. And Jesus is feeling it in this moment. You know what this reminds me of? You know what Wednesday is? Wednesday is the 18th anniversary of the attacks on our country on September 11th. 18 years. Most, most people who are under the age of 22, 23 don't even know what I'm talking about. They don't remember it. But it, for us that, we're, that are older, it's etched in our minds, that image. There's, there's a moment from the week following September 11th that really sticks out to me. I've, I've talked about it many times because it, it, it just has crystallized in my memory. President Bush goes down to the site where the Twin Towers have fallen, and he's standing on this pile of rubble, and he's trying to talk to the first responders to just give them some encouragement, and he's speaking through a bullhorn. And, and if you've ever used a bullhorn, you know they kind of direct sound in one direction, and there's people over on his left that they can't hear him, and they yell, We can't hear you! And so he turns to them, he says, well, just know that I can hear you. And soon, the people who did this are going to hear from all of us. It was that moment of grief and anger mixed together. It was that moment that we as a nation, we were mourning the loss of all of these lives, but we were angry and we wanted justice. And I think that's what Jesus is experiencing here at the tomb of Lazarus at this grave. He is mourning the loss of his friends, but he is angry that this brokenness has been perpetuated on the world. There's this brokenness that is taking people's lives and wrecking their lives, and he wants something to be done about it. And you know what's beautiful about Christianity? Is that in Christianity, we believe in a God who does something about it. Because in every other religion in the world, the, 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 the God or the, the, the being or the supernatural one comes and says, listen, you're all messed up, you're broken, you need to fix this. Good luck with that. Hey, here are the rules that you should be obeying. Here are the ways that you're messed up. You need to get that straight. Good luck with that. If you do enough good and you follow enough rules and you pray to me enough and you help enough people, then you'll be, you'll be accepted into my heaven, my paradise, where things are right. Jesus comes into our world and sees the brokenness on a personal level. He feels it. He becomes emotional about it. And he does something about it. He doesn't just come into our world and say, listen, this is messed up. You ought to work on that. Let me know what you figure out. No, He comes into our world and He fixes it. He makes it right. So in the middle of all of this, He looks at the tomb and it's a grave and they've got a stone over it and He says, move the stone out of the way. And Martha says, but Jesus, He probably stinks. 
I mean, the King James Version here says stinketh. That, that word is in your Bible. He stinketh. You sure you want to do that? And man, this, this moment is so beautiful because it's so us, isn't it? God, I believe in you. I know that you can, I know that you can fix my life. Okay, let's move this over here. Are you sure, God? Are you sure you want to do that? I, I don't know if that's a good idea. God, I believe in you. I know that you're the creator of the universe. I know that you love me. I know that you want to do a great thing in my marriage. And God says, okay, let's, let's move this out of the way. I don't know if we should move that right now. I don't know if that's a good idea, God. That's us. That's us. Martha says, yes, I believe. Jesus asked her, Martha, do you believe this? Yes, I believe. Okay, let's move the stone. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. Are, are, have you thought this through, God? Have you, have you thought this through? Jesus says, move it. Let's go. Move the stone. And they move the stone. And, and Jesus then prays a prayer, and in the middle of his prayer, he says, I'm saying these things not for your benefit, Father, but for the benefit of people standing around me. How many of you have ever had somebody pray, and you know they're not saying it for the benefit of God, they're saying it for your benefit? Like, they're praying things, you're like, okay, that was kind of pointed at me, I think. I remember one time my daughter was blessing the food and she said, Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for this food and please help Lincoln share his toys. <laughs> Jesus says, Lord, I'm praying these things not because I don't know if you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of others. He says a very simple prayer, which half of it is that. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man comes out of the grave. And the beauty of the Gospels is it's not like some superhero movie where the superhero finds this this evil person and it's like, oh man, he's more powerful than we thought. I better go back and do some training. And there's a music montage of him lifting like really big weights or finding some chemical that he needs that'll really give him the edge. No, Jesus just shows up and says, death, no more. And he conquers it. And it's not that he has to be on his A game. Or it's not that he has to, to really figure it out. It's not that he has to really exert himself. No, Jesus shows up. He says, death, you're done here. Lazarus, arise. And Lazarus comes walking out of the grave. That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that we worship. That he comes to this broken world and he fixes what is messed up. And I know that some of you are here and you can so identify with Mary and Martha. Because you have been in moments where you have been looking out the window and you've been saying, God, where are you at? We sent the messenger. He's already returned. We know that you know what is going on here. Jesus, where are you? Our brother is dying. We are watching him breathe his last breath. He looks pale. We know he doesn't have long. We have a friend who could heal him if he would just show up. Jesus, where are you? And all of that messed up, all of that broken, all of that that heartache that they were feeling, that they sat with for four days, in that moment where Lazarus came walking out of the grave, all of that just dissipated. Gone. Because Jesus had made right what was broken. The Sunday after September 11th, was one of the biggest attended Sundays for churches across America. But Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is in Manhattan, just blocks away from the site where the Twin Towers fell. Tim Keller, who had planted that church not too long before that, and the place was just packed with all these people who were showing up to church on Sunday. 
And so Keller, and he, he's looking at all of these people that are standing in the aisleways and standing in the foyer because there's no place to sit. He just walks up to the microphone five minutes before service and he says, all of you people who don't have a place to sit, come back in 90 minutes, we'll do this again. That's how they went to two services. In a decision where he just walked up to the microphone and said, hey, come back in 90 minutes, we'll figure this out again so that you can have a seat. The people came back. The message he shared on that Sunday after September 11th, it was from this passage of Scripture. And in that message, he tells a story that he has this recurring nightmare. The recurring nightmare that he has once a year or so is that in his dream, his wife has died. And he's just incredibly lonely, and he can't figure things out, and he's all on his own, and he just feels completely helpless because his wife has died. He feels completely lonely. But he says, you know, you know what's weird? He says, I kind of like having that nightmare. Because when I wake up in the morning, and I realize it was just a dream, and there's that moment where I realize that was just a dream. She's here with me. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to make us coffee. He says that is the most rapturous, enjoyable, beautiful moment where all of that darkness, all of that sadness, all of that loneliness just dissipates. That's what Jesus did for Mary and Martha when he said, Lazarus, come out of the grave. He made all of that heartache and all of that darkness just dissipate. And when Jesus says to us, I am the resurrection and the life, he gives us a hope that there is coming a day when all of the darkness will just dissipate. And it will be like waking up on a morning where we've had a bad dream and we realize that all of that was just a dream. And all of the darkness, all of the messiness of our past, all of the mistakes that we have made, all of the heartache that we have felt, that Christ has come and made all things right. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he dissipates all of the brokenness. And he confirms once again that he is the Son of God. It's the seventh miracle of seven miracles that John gives us in his gospel so that we might believe in the name of the Son of God and that believing in him, we might have life. If he is who he says that he is, we can have hope and significance in the good moments and in the bad because we believe in the Son of God who is coming, who gives us a hope that He will make all things new. And it might be like right now that you're in this moment where you're looking out the window and you're wondering why God hasn't shown up yet. But if you believe that He is the Son of God, you can have hope and certainty and knowledge that He is coming again. And we believe that He will dissipate all of the darkness and make all things new. But to have this hope, we must believe. Because hope is built upon faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If so, you have reason for hope. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.